Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. It is the people that you surround yourself with that determine both the quality of your ministry and the quality of your life. Uh, around here, we kind of have a little tag phrase. We say, do meaningful things with awesome people. That's, that's sort of the, the key to multiply ministry and a happy life. And, and so, you know, really choosing those, those compatriots wisely and slowly. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Chandler Vinoy, here as always with my co-host, Josh Hunter. Josh, you doing well today? I'm doing well, man. I'm sorry about this uh, past weekend. We don't know when this is going to release, but the ball's lost. You know. Tennessee football is at a pretty rough state right now. It's pretty rough, but it's okay because we have the Unseen Leadership Podcast. <laughs> Very to true. To. And I'm excited to who we have with us today. Yeah, who is that? We have J.D. Greer. Um, he is the pastor of the Summit Church, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And whose UNC Tar Heels actually had a fabulous weekend, if we're, if we're just going on. They right did. <laughs> they did. They did a great weekend. Um, Tar Heel fan, as you just heard. And he also hosts <laughs> Ask Me Anything podcast, which is incredible. You guys should go check it out. And he's the author of many, many books, including his latest, Above All. JD, so glad to have you here with us. How you doing today, man? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I, I really am jealous of North Carolina football. You guys, you have basketball already, but now you're getting football back. I'm, I'm very jealous. It's probably well, a fun season might, for It you. might be a little premature to, to declare to, to declare that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've won a couple games. I think we're 2-0, and oh, which I think is the first time that it's been like that in several seasons. So uh, let's just say it's not an embarrassment, and that's something for North Carolina fans to be excited about. Perfect. There you go. Well, hey, let's go ahead and hop in here and uh, kind of hear about your leadership journey. Can you walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles you've been in over the years that have led you to where you are today? Yeah, you know, I, I love what you guys are doing with this podcast and kind of the, the angle on it. And I, I actually just, just thinking about what we're going to talk about, maybe kind of look back and just reflect on it and realizing, you know, there's a lot of, of leadership gifts that are natural and God-given and just things God puts in you like he might put intelligence or athletic talent or, you know, uh, artistic talent. But um, then there's some that, that kind of come to the surface when the right moments call for them. And some of them are spiritual maturity. I was always kind of an extrovert and, you know, kind of the, I don't know, you class president, team captain on the sort of thing. But it, it took a definite shift when I was about 16, when essentially I just became, when I became a Christian. Hmm. and like a genuine follower of Jesus and desired to have my friends follow me. You know, before it was all about like, hey, what position, you know, can I get? And then afterwards it was like, I, I need you guys to follow me here. Hmm. And, you know, they say the best definition of leadership is is when you know where you're going and, one other people, and you want other people to follow you. And that I, I'm realizing how profoundly just the, these questions, let me reflect on how profoundly those kind of two or three moments shaped my life to follow Christ, to, uh, to, you know, pursue the great commission. Um, so that was, you know, I mean, I did become, you know, like, uh, student body president at my school. And that was part of the reason was just because it was a very, you know, kind of clear conviction on, on that. Then when I went over, um, I went overseas to be a, a missionary and, uh, you know, it was just, you know, using that position and that vision to call churches back in the United States to get engaged. I'm realizing that was a key time of leadership. I started when I was in college, uh, um, a, a Bible study on our campus that was, designed to reach people that weren't being reached by 
the more traditional Christian ministries. And, um, I don't know, just that blew up from a handful of students to several hundred. And that was where God really called me into ministry because up until then I thought I was just following Jesus and going to go into law. Um, and then, you know, when I came back and then you know, became a pastor, it, it really was, was just, it would now, it's sort of a formalized position of doing what I've been doing for a long time. I always tell guys like if they feel like they're called to preach, or if they feel like they're called to lead, you should just look around you and see that you're already leading, you mm. know, in whether it's volunteer capacities or you should just look and see, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't get leadership bestowed on you by position. And if you do, those end up becoming the worst, worst kinds of leaders. So. So when you were, I know you stepped into the summit church. Um, how many years ago was that JD? Oh goodness. Uh, let's see. 2000. So I became college pastor in 2000. In 1999, and then and then became senior pastor in 2002. So was that 17 years senior pastor? Yeah. So can you can you walk us through? I know, and I, I love the vision um, of being a sending church. We I actually read through with our life group leaders at my church, uh, gaining by losing. And it, listeners, if you've not read that book, it's such a great book um, of being sent in your entire life, but also as a church. And in that, I know JD, you guys have a initiative to plant 1,000 churches. Um, so can you kind of walk us through since O2 to now, what did that leadership look like for you in the growth and also in the growth in your own leadership and having to scale, uh, as the summit church grew? Yeah. Uh, man, great question. The, you know, so in O2, I'm realizing, I don't know, I feel like this is going to be very non-inspiring, but I feel <laughs> like the, um, I feel like the things that God has done and the, the leader roles that he's given me, he's kind of dragged me into to the point that when I finally figured it out, I was kind of like, you, you idiot. Like, how, how, <laughs> how have you been so blind to this? Cause you see that God had written it and he gently called until finally he just like grabbed me by both, you know, shoulders and shook me and said, would you stop starting doing what I told you to do? Um, you know, I had this, I had this, uh, you know, experience on the mission field and I came back and started to lead a church in the United States. And, um, you know, it was, as church started to grow a little bit and college students started to come to our church and it was exciting and we were all intoxicated with our success. And then there was a couple of, you know, kind of key moments that happened. Um, one was, um, I, when the tsunami hit Southeast Asia in 2004, that was when, um, that was, it was in the place that I had been as a missionary and I went back over there and, and, uh, while I was just driving around the city, I remembered all these feelings I used to have about the city that I was in over there. You know, it was like, there was, um, you know, I was the only Christian witness, intentional Christian witness there within a hundred miles. And I just felt like it was like my city, you know, over there. And I, I didn't feel like that about the city that I was pastoring in. You know, the city was like a host culture that we were trying to, you know, draw people up out of the city into our church. And the goal was a great big church. And it, it was just like the Holy Spirit prompted me, you know, why don't you feel this way about your city right now? Um, it was shortly after that, that I was praying, um, I'd set aside a day of you know, for prayer and fasting and was praying for God to send revival to our church and awakening. And, and, uh, one of the, just a, a moment where the Holy spirit kind of, again, just, you know, was like, all right, what if I send this awakening that you're, you're asking for? And what if I pour out my spirit on the triangle in North Carolina? Like, like nobody's ever, you know, nobody's ever anticipated, but what if I don't use your church? You know, what if your church is not the one that, that, that gets big and famous and you still want me to do it? And I, I knew that like, you know, I knew, I knew the right answer was, you know, oh yes, Lord, you must increase and I'm a decrease, but that wasn't, that wouldn't have been the real answer. The real answer was no, I really wanted it to be, to be about me. And, and it was, you know, those things that kind of revealed that 
I had just gotten totally off in sort of how I was approaching ministry. And so I started to pray like, Lord, if, you know, we're, 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 we want to change the spiritual temperature of the city and God, we want to raise a ascending movement. And if that means that our church gets big in the process, well, okay. But it also means if we give away the best of our resources and the best of our, um, our leaders to, to make that happen, then that's okay too, because the church belongs to you. And that way it was kind of a, a moment, a watershed moment where just sort of every, every the, the entire shape of our ministry began to, to evolve. And, um, you know, I look back and realize that God had been trying to plant that vision in me from the beginning. He's been like, you're going to be a church for the nations. And yes, you're going to reach your area. And yeah, you, you, you know, I, I might bless your church with numerical growth and budget growth, but, but what I give you, I give you for the purpose of the nations. And I'm like, it was plain the whole time, but it was my own idolatry and stubbornness that, that got there. It's been other things as well. You know, it's kind of other things that we just feel like we sort of stumbled into. Um, I used to feel really bad. I used to be kind of embarrassed um, as a leader. And I still kind of am because I feel like you're supposed to, when you start out, have this, you know, this incredible blueprint and here's my 10 year goals and my 20 year goals. And I was like, look, I think we need to go this direction. And we started to go that direction and the Holy Spirit kind of guided us and rebuked us and shaped us along the way. Um, I felt really bad about that until I heard one, I heard Andy Stanley say it. And, um, you know, regardless of, of what you think about various dimensions of Andy's ministry, he is a leader par excellence. And I, he said the same thing about North Point. And I thought, oh, well, that's comforting that he didn't start out with a blueprint either. He just sort of followed what, he, what seemed right and, you know, and, and scriptural. And, and then the other one was Charles Spurgeon said basically the same thing. Um, he wrote just, that's kind of how he, you know, he proceeded in ministry is, is go this direction and let, let God build it as you go. Yeah, I love, thank you for sharing that. I, this th- I think this next question bleeds in just a little bit to it, but looking back when you're first starting to lead JD, what was one of your biggest leadership mistakes getting started? Like, was there a failure that you remember or a parent failure that you look back now and you're like, man, that set me up later to be more successful in my leadership? Well, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know if the first thing comes to mind is like a disastrous moment. Like, you know, although there, there have been a few of those, but you more some things that have been reinforced along the way that I did not understand. Yeah. Um, uh, at the beginning, at the beginning, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of them. one. It is the people that you surround yourself with that determine both the quality of your ministry and the quality of your life uh, around here. We kind of have a little tag phrase. We say, do meaningful things with awesome people. That's, that's sort of the, the key to multiply ministry and a happy life. And, and so, you know, really choosing those, those compatriots wisely and slowly. Donald Rumsfeld always, you know, says, make, make your biggest mistakes slowly. And so mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to choosing people to be around me, I want it to be really you know, kind of deliberate and just sort of intentional. And, and, and now um, the, the result of, of, of having a team assembled that thinks alike, that loves each other, that trust each other, um, the, 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 the impact of that is exponentially greater, which kind of ties into the second thing. And that is that I, I used to think that, that all you needed to really guide the church was a carefully articulated scriptural vision. And that's important, but I, I kind of had the attitude that if you just, man, you stood up and you said it one time, if you said it the right way, then everybody would get it and follow you. Um, and, and that's just not how, you know, they say pastors consistently overestimate what they can accomplish in a church in five years and they underestimate what they can accomplish in 20. 
And the difference in year five and year 20 is not necessarily the vision. It's the culture that's been built around the vision. Um, you know, uh, culture is what is, is what, what produces the results. Peter Drucker, the, you know, late uh, leadership guru, um, he used to say that culture eats strategy for breakfast, which means you come back from some conference and you got the strategy. I want to plant a thousand churches. I want to, you know, launch a multi-site. But he said, if you don't have the culture built there, then the strategy is just going to, it's going to fizzle out. And so you got to take time to really build that culture. Uh, in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talks about that spinning the, spinning the flywheel. And so realizing now that over time, we have spun the flywheel here, and that's largely consisted of getting the right people in place and getting us thinking in, in ways. Now, you know, when we start an initiative, it just has so much more impact because it flows out of that culture. One more thing I'll say on this, because I know the kind of uh, listeners that probably dial into this podcast. I, I also saw this reinforced by a biography I read um, not too long ago about Winston Churchill. Hmm. Um, Churchill obviously is one of the, the greatest orators of the 20th century. This biographer pointed out that Churchill's oratorical ability was, at least at the beginning of his political career, it was as much of a liability as it was an asset. <laughs> and of course, that's odd. You think, how could it be a liability? He said, well, it's because he had such confidence in it that he thought if he just said it the right way it, with enough you know, persuasion and force that it would win the battle. And so he would kind of come out of his, you know, so, so to speak, ivory tower. He'd deliver his perfectly crafted monologue. Everyone would be blown away, but then nothing would really change. Mm. This biographer, the foil to Winston Churchill was, um, was Lyndon Johnson. When Lyndon Johnson, who obviously lived several years later, but Lyndon Johnson was a terrible public speaker. I made your ears bleed, but he was, <laughs> but, but he looked at his public speeches as basically an, a, a, um, an appetizer or like an introduction to a bunch of one-on-one conversations that he was going to have later. And so he knew that the real work of leadership came in the conversations that took place after the speech. And Winston Churchill didn't get that at the beginning of his career. He thought if you said it right, you said it perfectly, then it would carry the day. But really leadership is not just saying it. It's also, you know, working behind the scenes to build the culture to pull it off. Um, and so I, to, to me, that's sort of been what it's been here at the church. At the beginning, I thought if I just preach the right sermon series, it's done. And it's like, no, you preach a sermon series and then you preach it again in elders meetings and you preach it in deacons meetings. And you, you just, you got to, you know, the way we say it now at our, at our, on our staff team is when I am sick of saying it, when I'm like, I cannot stand to say this one more time. That means that our staff has usually just heard it when I'm <laughs> yeah. sick of it. And when they're finally sick of hearing it, and when they're fed up, then that means the congregation usually heard it for the first time. So if you were to be on staff here, you would you would say things that you have heard so ad nauseum that if I you know woke you up at three thirty in the morning out of a deep sleep, you'd wake up you know uttering some of these phrases, um, you know, uh, sending every member, doing whatever it takes to reach all people, sending you know, planting a thousand churches. We measure our our success not by seating capacity, but sending capacity, mm-hmm. and those are things that we just at every level of our organization. Are, are trying to infuse as a part of the culture. I love how you said that, JD. And I, I love uh, kind of that World War II time. So I've, I've read a few different Churchill biographies and it is interesting how it kind of was, it was a great strength of his, but he leaned on it way too much. So I, I'm glad that you, you went there uh, with that. But I also know that, and I love the way that you said it, that the cu- culture is where change begins and it's not mm-hmm. just saying it from stage, but it's embedding the culture within your people. And I right. know that you all have the plumb lines at the Summit Church. Can you kind of walk through just really quickly how that has helped you all embed culture and change culture by having those plumb lines? 
Yeah, so plumb lines were something I took from Larry Osborne, who is kind of the King Solomon the, that you've never heard of in the <laughs> megachurch world. He's out on the West Coast, and he's just his leadership stuff is fantastic. And you know, plumb line is a, a straight like you know, you hang it from the top of a wall, and it is the the line that sets what's straight, and you can build the rest of the you know the wall along that that edge. He said that you know in ministry you need certain kind of just guiding principles and values, little catchy phrases that, that will just pop up in conversation. So I think, you know, so we started out with five or six and then you know how these things are over time. We, you know, eventually there's like, thir- I tried to write them all down one day. There's like 40 of them and I was like, <laughs> it's not working anymore. But, but there are things like the gospel is not the diving board. It's the pool. Um, you know, like I've already mentioned a couple of, we measure our success, not by sending seating capacity, but sending capacity. Um, we're trying to make disciples, not converts. Um, the local church is God's plan A, just all, all kinds of stuff that just would work in the conversation. We, we, so a couple of years ago, we codified them down into about 15 of them. And what I would do is for our staff, once a month, I have um, we have a big all staff meeting and it's basically like a miniature worship service. We, you know, it's just there's a lot of praise and worship, a lot of prayer for each other. And essentially I give a, a mini sermon, but it's usually not you know just teaching out a book of the Bible. It's usually teaching on one of those plumb lines. Yeah. And then. And then showing like, here's how this shows up and here's how this That's answers cool. the questions. Well, recently we, we've kind of re come up with the next iteration of that. And that is that we've kind of codified that down into a, a guiding, like, you know, principle of the church is sort of a, a through line for everything. I mean, I guess you could call it a mission statement um, and then values that surround those um, and only four of them. And just saying, we want these four things. And we're every time we make a decision, it shouldn't be like Patrick Lencioni says, it shouldn't be who is in the room that determines a decision. It should be these values that determine the decision. So the, the, the statement that we really kind of captured all of them, and I'll give you one more thing before I give it to you, see where it came, where, where I really got inspired by it, is we had some members that started to come to our church that used to be a part of Andy's church down in Atlanta, uh, Alpharetta, and they just asked, they're like, well, what's kind of this church, what's its, its core? Yeah. Because you know, they could tell me Andy's, I mean, they've been, and I would say they were only marginally involved in, in North mm-hmm. Point. They definitely weren't, you know, part of the inner circle, and, but they could just maybe could spit it out. You know, we're, we're, I, I can't remember the exact what it was, bigger. but we're trying is to it, create. Is it we want to be a church that unchurched people love to attend? Well, that's the, the really short version of it, but it's like, they're trying to create welcoming environments okay. for people yeah. for, you know, something like, and you can find it on their website. And I was like, man, I just don't know if they could say that about our church. So hmm. ours that we came up with is um, that, you know, following the Holy spirit, we want to see a movement of disciple making disciples in Raleigh, Durham, and around the world. Um, disciple making disciples is the core kind of like, that's just, you know, that, that, that to us is the goal line. So that it's not big churches, but disciple making disciples. And of course, not just in the triangle, but around the world. Then we, 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 we express that in four values. The one, the first one is just the gospel above all. And that means that of all the different agendas and priorities that our church can pursue from political to social, you know, um, impacts. We're just going to say the gospel and reaching people for Jesus is by far, um, by far going to be, you know, outweigh all the others. You should uh, the write a book on that, JD. That's a great <laughs> idea. That's uh, that's kind of catchy, isn't it? So gospel above all, uh, the second one is, um, uh, that we'll do whatever it takes to reach all people. And that just indicates for us that, you know, we always say the one outweighs the 99 and that's from Jesus's parable, of course. And so, uh, you know, we obviously are, are trying to take care of the 99 
you know, so to speak, that are members here. And we know that Jesus died for them and it's his body. But we also know that there's more joy in heaven over going after that one. And so we always kind of we're trying to do both, but we're always, you know, prioritizing the, the going after that one, because that's what I, you know, I see in scripture is that that's what, you know, was the heart of Jesus. Then the, the, um, the third one is uh, we make disciples, not converts. And that just means that we're going to be really intentional about not just celebrating baptisms and attendance, but, you know, are we, are we producing disciple making disciples? And then the fourth one is that we send every member um, so that everybody, we end every service at the summit church the same way we ended with the, with the phrase, you are sent uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, as an example of trying to reinforce to everybody that sending is not something that happens to a few church planners and missionaries. It's something that every single member of our church should see themselves as sent um, in some way. Once again, embedding culture. So yeah, I right. really like how you're using language. Even the pictures that are up at our facilities, by the way, even the picture, we have plumb lines scattered around this church. Um, I mean, just, you'll see them on walls uh, in my you know backstage area. It's just, I, I really feel like you can't get out of our church without a few of these things are sort of sticking to you. JD, what was your biggest misconception as a young leader? Probably it ties into what I said earlier about just thinking that it was my, you know, my upfront ability that was the sum mm-hmm. total of everything. And I just you know, realized that leadership is, you know, what do they say? It's 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, there's inspiring speeches, but there's just, it work. Um, it, you know, the, the importance of, I probably, and this is more just my own sinfulness. The other misconception was how enjoyable it must be to be in a place of massive influence and a lot of responsibility where people know who you are. Um, I'm just going to say right now, I, I love what I do. I'm, I can't believe I get paid for what I do. I, I get up every day and my feet hit the floor and I can't wait to get the day started. But um, it's just, you know, it's, it, it becomes, if you want to become a big influential leader because you think it'll add to your like quality of life, then that is a fool's errand. Hmm. Um, that Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just nothing yeah. but, heartache and misery there. My wife, who's um, just a, a wonderful gift to me and because she's kind of opposite of me and most of my natural sins, she's or kind of her natural virtues. Um, she, uh, you know, she says that fame is making yourself accessible to a bunch of people you don't really care about at the expense of those that you do. And, wow. you know, we just, we just seen that it's that the stuff we had when our church was 300 people big, you know, the, the relationships we had there, those are the ones that were as life giving as anything else. And, and we, and by God's grace, we have those now. I like yeah. you because know, the church I, I pastor, we, but we, but that's taken a lot of intentional development mm-hmm. to say, we're not going to just become this kind of public figure. We moved into a neighborhood with two or three families from our church that we're close to. Um, they all live in walking distance from each other. They're not that impressed with me. They're not that impressed with my marriage. And people listen to a, a series I do on marriage of the family. And they're like, wow, you must be the best husband and father ever. And you know, they're <laughs> those family brothers kind of shaking their heads going, nope. Yeah. yeah a lot better than it lives. So anyway, it's th- 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 those things were misconceptions. Um, and realizing that, yeah, it's, it's, it's walk with God and family and friends that, that ultimately determine the quality of your life. Yeah. I love that. I love that you said all that stuff. A lot of times people view leadership as, and sometimes it is like this, but a quarterback driving downfield in the two minute, two minute drill in the fourth quarter to lead their team to a victory and they get the spotlight and they hold the Lombardi trophy up at the end. And it's amazing. And sometimes it is that, 
but I think a lot of times it's more like micro on dirty jobs. And like <laughs> yeah. You got you to gotta go that's in good. there, do the really hard work that nobody sees, that you're not getting credit for, but that's where the Lord sanctifies us the most and turns us into a leader that mm-hmm. can lead out in public and lead out with yep. more character than we had before getting the spotlight. Yeah, great word. So now let's transition to the quick hitter questions. And we'll start out with this one, JD. What is your ideal daily routine? So in the midst of everything that you're doing, uh, what is what time do you wake up, get into the office, exercise, all that good stuff? So I'd say a typical day has me getting up 6.30 or so. I use, first thing I do is with time with God and um, you say a half hour or so there. Um, I then spend, my kids are uh, getting out of the house. They're, you know, at old enough where um, a couple of them are, you know, they, they ride to school together. And so I'm not really involved a whole lot then, but I, I study at home and I spend my first two hours um uh, just in the word, then I take a break and go to the gym to exercise. Um, that is a daily routine. I do it five days a week. Um, CrossFit, you know, three of those days and then two of the days working out at home. Come back. Um, my morning time, I have since the, the first days of being a pastor, I've always reserved my morning times for time with God and, and writing messages and that sort of thing, because that is where my mind is the freshest and most creative. Um, at noon, I, I stop and that's I almost always have a lunch with somebody. Um, a leader, a congregation member, come back in. My afternoons are a lot more flexible where a lot of time, whether it's, you know, meeting with people in the church or meeting with staff or, you know, devoting some more time to, to message preparation or writing something. Um, I could, I, I work like just nonstop, you know, with only occasional short breaks up until right about six and then go home and li- and literally do not think about anything. Like I just I get home at six fifteen. It's time with my kids, and uh, and and then you know my wife and I in the evening. By you know we usually read for about a half hour in the evening, and and uh, I don't know, we usually watch. Uh, I want to say something on TV, but maybe it's to sound spiritual. We watch sermons and, you know, um, that kind of thing, but that's not true. But, you know, we watch something <laughs> on TV and then, and then go sleep, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock. That's, and that's basically it. I imagine like when you go home and you're thinking about nothing, I just had this picture of you in a chair just staring at a blank wall with drool coming out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may be true, but it's, uh, it's more that with a kid, you know, somewhere doing something. Right. Cause we just, I got four kids and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I should drink a Red Bull on the way home because that's when the real, yeah, that's when the real, the real day kind of starts. Sure. It's great. You can leave work at work though. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And part of that is building the staff that does that. So yep, that's good. What's your favorite personality test and what is, uh, what's your results from those tests? <laughs> so my wife is like the guru at these things. And I almost <laughs> in reaction, I'm like, I'm like, Oh, you know, so, so, I mean, I've never taken the, what are the Enneagram? Yeah. Um, it seems to me to be a really helpful, useful one, or at least it's the one that's a fad right now. My wife says I'm the purest eight that she has ever you know, encountered just because I'm eight with no wings. Uh, and, and she's, uh, I told her I'm eight wing Jesus. That's what I say. And she says, no, no, you're just eight, just eight. Um, so when I was, uh, Myers Briggs was always the one that I kind of, you know, was my, the bread and butter. And I can't, yeah. it's hard to remember all ESTJ. That was my, ESTJ. Uh, cool. yeah. awesome. What has been the best book you've read in the past six months? Oh, uh, any subject or any subject. Yep. Okay. Man, oh, it's, it's like a glut of riches there. Okay, let me think. Uh, <laughs> you know, I do actually write down every book that I read uh, because yeah. because I like to go back through them. Do you um, use on the, on the history? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, 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 no. Cause I, I don't like people looking over my shoulder like that. There you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> type eight. That's totally a type eight statement, by the way, JD. Yeah. So confronting Christianity, 12 hardest questions for the world's biggest religion by Re- Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, not many people know about her yet. And I think pretty soon you will. Um, it's she, she's a Cambridge grad, Cambridge, England. Um, she is man. Like she's got the the logical clarity of a Keller, but the kind of pathos of a Johnny Erickson Tata, and just with some of her background and her academics, she is a, a going to be a rising voice, and it's one of the best books I've read on that one. Um, I just finished another one called Destiny of the Republic, um, Madness, Medicine, and, and the Murder of a President about an amazing president of the United States that nobody's ever heard of James Garfield. Yeah, uh, it was awesome. It was just such a good, if you're into that kind of, you know, history type of book. And then one more, um, just to, to throw it out there just for the pure fun book is the curse of Oak Island. Um, which is one of the most amazing stories about a treasure Island and a like, true story about a 350 year treasure hunt. That's been going on in that Island. That is the most bizarre wacky thing you're you're gonna believe like i can't believe this is actually you know happening and they still haven't figured it out so uh, it's now been turned into a history channel special which moves at like slugs pace but uh, the book is better have you read uh speaking of destiny of the republic have you read candace uh, millard's churchill book i have not hero of the empire it's a good one as well it's good I'll, i'll note it right now i'll check him out JD, last question, my favorite question. Right. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? Um, go slow. Don't be, I mean, assuming if somebody wants to go into a leadership position, usually they have the kind of personality that's not very patient. Um, <laughs> Billy Graham used to say that he, if he could do it over again, he'd spend more time in preparation and less time out there. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely seen that at every stage of my life, I've been excited to get to the next phase. And I've often gotten ahead of God unhelpfully. Um, Martin Luther, in his, it was, a, it was in a preface to his book, Freedom of the Christian. He is writing it to a bunch of prospective pastors, and he just tells them. At this point, of course, he's really, really famous you know, in the German world, but he was like, never aspire to teach the church at large. Teach your local church and be content with that. And if the church, the, the universal church feels like you have something to say to it, they'll come to you. That's good. And so, man, just be faithful what God's given you. And then when he opens up a door and calls you, then then go through it if it's his will, but but don't seek it. Let, it. let it come to you. That's a great reminder. JD, thanks for joining us on the podcast today and sharing about your leadership journey and your time as a young leader. And thank you for listening today. We hope that this has been helpful to you and your leadership. And if it has been, Head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so that other leaders like yourself can find the podcast. We'll see you next week. See you.